Hello, everyone, and tune in quick. Come on, find your station. The station's right here. I need you to stop what you're doing, and you're going to want to hear a great story today. But first, a couple of things. We just got over Memorial Day weekend, and it seems that it was the star of the summer for a lot of the Americans. Also, the UK had a big bank holiday on Monday. It kind screws everybody up. That Monday off threw me off. For example, yesterday I was supposed to do my show for Center Force, and I'm just sitting outside in the garden with the sun because the days are getting longer. And all of a sudden, I get a message from Johnny Camp saying, Oh, we're ready, Lenny. I'm like, Oh, what day is it? I'm thinking it's Sunday. Oh, it's Tuesday already. So bang on. We got it done. And Center Force Radio with the True House Takeover went off really well at midnight. We do it every fortnight on the Tuesday into Wednesday morning, 12 a.m. to 2 a.m. out of London as well. Terry Farley sent me this. You know him. He is the Grand Wizard of Faith Magazine. The man who put Faith Fanzine together with Defected has now told me that the spring issue is available in some of the New York City stores. So get your free copy. Casa Magazines, Mulberry Iconic, Iconic Cafe, Soho News, Magazine Cafe, Head High Brooklyn, Rough Trade, Razor and Tape Store, and selected places. And if you're lazy, go on Defected site. Defected, I think it's .co.uk, and you can go and get the Faith Magazine sent right to you, and you're going to see pictures like this. This is a personal picture from Johnny Dennis, Junior Vasquez, as the Sound Factory was just beginning when he had blonde hair, when he had all his hair. <laughs> That's how far back we're talking. We had some of the magazines. I do this, do this every week so you guys get behind it. This is a journey to sound of the 90s, the systems in New York, and, of course, a part was done on me as well. And you got Junior Vasquez in there. They talk about, I said, Tony Humphreys, Risa Garcia, Benny Soto, so many of the heroes, Louis Vega and Underground Network with Barbara Tucker and Don Welch. Pick up your copy at Defect. Well, welcome to True House Stories. And of course, we're now in the beginning of the summer. And I like to talk about summer in a positive way because now we have the time where rooftop parties become the thing. But there was a time in the beginning of the golden era, in the 80s into the 90s, when house music was just churning its way. Like, like they said, you know, if you turn milk, it turns into butter. Well, that's what happened with some of this music. Music that started out of Chicago and New York, imported into England, took off in different cities. And each city had its base, its clubbers, its lifestyle, its people. You know, we call it tribal rights. You know what I'm saying? Tribal rights. What does that mean? We go to work, we go to school, and all we think about is Saturday night. Saturday night, which we need. We need this. I need the gear. I need to get high. I don't mean get high on just the drugs. I need to get high on the music. I want to see my friends. It happened everywhere. It used to happen in New York. It happened in London. But we're going to now focus the camera onto a small city that's actually quite grand and large in, in a very big way. Hull, 
England. That's H-U-L-L. And a man that took it a dream by going out to an island. I'm going to let him tell you that story and hanging out and dancing as a kid and bringing that effect that what you gain when you're out hearing a DJ or experiencing a band that changes your whole world and takes you from, I was maybe into rock before and now I found Jesus Christ to disco music you know, or house in a sense. You know what I'm saying? So all of a sudden you become this, I found my tribal rights. This is where I belong. This is who I am. With no further ado, I want to bring up to this stage one of the greatest, greatest guys I know in this game. And I'm going to say it like this, with staying power. Because he's made it clear in many posts that age is only a number. It's what comes from within is what you put out there. So if you think young and feel young, you shall never grow old. Up on this damn stage today, in True House Stories, one of the greatest promoters we know in the game I worked for. Fantastic fella, top guy, professional, knows his things, is his nines, down and up and all around. Terry Spammer, deja vu, baby. Hold. Hi, Lenny. How are you? Thank you, mate. I'm glad. Welcome to the show a show that is built and you are now and are going to be an alumni of and tell us the story. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the show. How's Thank everything you. going for you? Because I'm so glad after 30 years or 30 plus years, you're still doing it one better than the other. So how are yeah, you? We're still, we're still doing it, Lenny. Um, we're still pushing on. Um, you know, we still got the passion for putting on parties and, and we love what we do. As long as people want to still carry on dancing at our parties, then we'll keep on doing them. That's all that matters at the end of the day, right? As long as you of have course. the people lining up for the queue, you'll open the door. Exactly. If that dance floor's full, we're doing our job. Are you finding it hard to keep this going at this stage of your life now? Or is it, or you just have a formula that you feel works? No, not at all. You know, I, I still feel 21. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, absolutely not. I've still got the, if you've got the passion, you've got the buzz for doing it. It doesn't, you know, it's, I, I just love what I do. So I still, I've still got the energy. I thought I was going to give it up when I hit 50, a couple of years back, but um, that's gone out the window. And, and you know, I'm going to carry on doing parties as long as people want to dance to them. You know, as long as people want to come to my venues, then I'll carry on. That's all that matters. Well, let's get right into it because you got a really big story. You know, and I'm the, the customary thing of this show is that we like to get the beginnings of you yourself, you know, like <clears throat> how does music find someone like yourself as a young kid? Because it always starts from, you know, either you took piano lessons or, you know, you danced or, you know, we always get interesting beginnings, which leads you to a place where you are today. But there's always, as I always say, there's always a beginning. So fill us into that part, the younger Terry. Right. Okay. Well, I got into sort of music when I was about 13. Um, unusually, I mean, my, my mum and mum and dad, they, my mum was into ABBA and Elvis Presley. My dad was into every rock music, but 
I sort of discovered Northern Soul and um, Soul and Funk and Motown. And just that soulfulness and the meaning of those records just resonated with me. Um, and so I just love that sound. So that's, that was my first introduction to sort of music. And I started going to every school disco possible, every church disco, every school disco. And I was just fascinated by the DJ and the music. And then obviously the fashion as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so I was just, you know, captivated by watching the DJ, the lights. And then I got, you know, then I got older and started going to proper, you know, normal nightclubs. Again, I was still into soul music, a big record collector, loved, loved buying all different records um, from different record shops across the UK. And then in 1985, I, 86, sorry, I went to Benidorm. That was a place that a lot of people in the UK went on holiday at that particular time, well before Ibiza. And um, there was an American DJ playing at the big club there. And he played the first house music tracks that I'd, that I'd heard. So he played Farley Jackmaster Funk, Love Cat Turn Around, Steve Sulkerly, uh, Jackie Body, Marshall Jefferson, House Music Anthem. And, and, and the energy that we got from these records was amazing. I um, came back to the UK, I hunted down these records, I bought them. They then charted in the UK and there seemed to be a bit of a buzz about this new sound that's come from America. But then it all seemed to go a bit quiet. Um, and I mean, I think in maybe some of the cities uh, there was a bit of, you know, there was a bit of a scene, but it wasn't until 1988 that things really started to explode with house music. Um, that was the year I went to Ibiza. Um, and it hit me like a steam train, you know, it was like, wow, what is going on here? You know, because um, it was like, I'd, I'd sort of forgotten about art music. I'd got back into my soul and funk sort of scene. And, um, but it was just exploding on the island. It was just crazy. A little, I must admit, it was a bit too intense for me at that time. I was like, this is crazy, you know, because I mean, everybody was on drugs. It was just, it was mental, you know? Um, but then I went back to the UK. And I think what it was with Ibiza as well, there was it, there was a lot of acid I was being played. And that's right. I, experience I prefer, I saw yeah, I, I preferred the Chicago, New York sound because it had more soul, you know, being an ex, being into the soulful scene at the time. Um, so I came back to the UK. Um, and then I, I think it was about a year later, I went to a club in Hull, uh, the Welly Club legendary club in in the city um and i just i just got the bug i literally just got the bug and from that point onwards i was going all across the country to the hacienda to that story in london listening to the listening to all the djs like graham park nicky holloway polo confold um and then i wanted the records that they would play so that's how it that's how i got into house music Mm. Were you hearing anyone on the radio at that time as well? Or, you know, because that was that could have been another big part of it. Um, like we know, yeah, you know what? a lot. Jesse M was on that LT, L, LWR radio and he was doing things in the 80s as well, breaking the house records in the beginning. 
Was there anyone up there doing something like that? I'm trying to think. It was pre-Pete Tong. I think, was it Jeff Young or somebody like that? It was at his Radio 1 show. Yeah. He was, was, was playing soul and funk, but he started to play a lot, lot of house music. Um, I think it was Jeff Young. It was pre-Pete Tong, but then obviously Pete Tong got his show and, you know, he took it to a different level. Um, but, yeah, I would say in that's that was the only people that I would sort of listen to on the radio. But there was obviously a lot of mixes going around, a lot of tapes. You know, there was, there was, there was tapes going about from Paul Trouble Anderson. Right. They were pretty legendary at the time. Um, and that was obviously the New York sound. But no, it was it was really there was there's a few local DJs in Hull that was playing that got started playing house music, um, but it was it was for me it was going out of town and and then you know buying records from likes of Eastern Block and Black Market, Blue Bear Records, they were the they were the um, the, the record shops of choice for me and that yeah. gave me an edge. Um, I was just doing I wasn't even DJing then or putting parties on I was just. I was just doing tapes for friends. A record collector making tapes. Yeah, yeah. Two, 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 two um, record decks together with a double tape deck pausing. You know, with the 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 um, technique. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's how things kicked off, really. You know, there was a friend, um, a friend. I was building caravans. I was a, a joiner at a caravan factory, and. Um, a friend of mine who was working alongside, he was decided he was going to put a rave on, an illegal rave, and he asked me to DJ. Um, oh, which wow. I said, when, which, I, which I said, right, okay, I've never DJed in my life. He went, oh, you've got all the records, you'll be fine. <laughs> Don't worry, which you I have didn't. music, just play the music. Don't worry. Yeah, 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 just play it. He, he didn't Don't have a clue. Don't worry. Just, you got all this stuff, you got all the gear, just play it. Right? Yeah. Well, he didn't have a clue about it. He'd never put an event on in his life. He didn't have any idea about any technical stuff. So he, um, but his, his, his dad was a, a compare at a working man's club in Hull. So he borrowed this ancient sound system and a pair of turntables um, that must have gone back to the 60s when they were doing ballroom dancing. Um, and I turned up to do this gig. And I said, oh, where's the headphones? There's no, there's no, there's no headphones and there's no socket for the headphones. And it didn't have any. <laughs> it didn't have, it didn't have headphones. And, you know, it was deck, it was these, um, these turntables. You were supposed to speak in between the records, you know, you're supposed to talk about the track, more right. of a compare rather than the DJ. And, and this other DJ was setting up this, uh, it was a, like a commercial DJ was setting up the, the equipment. Said, oh, don't worry about that. Just just put your ear to the to the stylus and um and 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 wait for the listen to, for the click, you know, where you hit the beat. Um and and just cue it up. So I thought, right, okay, well, I'll give it a go. There were people coming into the venue. Um, well, the warehouse, it was uh, it was full of full of people, and there was all you know, shouting, get the music on. Um, and the sat kicked off my first record, which was a soft house company, what you need, and which had the most amazing intro. And um, and the crowd just just roared, you know, there's this loud cheer. Um, and the place just went off from that moment onwards. And uh, Let me stop you for a second. 
you've never had a cheer before in your life like that, right? Never. No. <laughs> oh, so, so that experience must have been the same as watching a football player when they score, right? That that you get that you know that yeah. roar, right? Yeah. How's that feeling feel the first time? Because you never forget that feeling. No, no. It was like the airs on the back of my neck, this big rush coming up my body. I, I was like, whoa, what is going on? You know, and everyone, and then everyone going mental. Score, and loving, score. Yeah, loving the, loving the music. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was all, you know, high and, but it was just, it was just the best feeling. And I just thought from that moment onwards, wow. I've got to do this, you know. I've got to, I've got to get involved. I've got to put more parties on. I've got a DJ, um, and you know, so the just... joiner, the joiner work was done for you at that moment, right? Well, I had a few more years. I had a few more years in the within the caravan industry, having to um, having to fund my hobby because it was it was a it was an hobby for another couple of years before before um, things really kicked off for me. What's the first parties you did? They weren't deja vu yet, right? No, they weren't. So, I mean, as you know, Lenny, the, the rave scene in the UK, the big outdoor raves, they were massive in the UK. Um, and that that was a big scene. So I, I was going to all of those type of events by then. Um, but it was all, the music was changing. It was getting great, be more, it was getting a bit too hardcore for me. And I, Still preferred the more US sound, if I'm honest. Right. And the um so and th about that about that time there was a lot of promoters that started to do more proper house nights in venues with a dress code and all the rest of it. So I just I'd move I moved away from doing the doing the rave nights, uh, which I'd been doing in the city, which were very successful to be honest. But I just wanted to do something that I was into. I needed to feel the music. I need to do something that I enjoyed myself. Sure. I could have taken I could have taken the money, but it I, it didn't feel true to me. And why? I don't why know. Why didn't it feel true? It, I've, it, I wanted to do something which when you have a vision. When, when you're going to other clubs across the UK, mm -hmm. amazing venues like the Hacienda or the Astoria, yes. and you're seeing these amazing DJs play, for me, it was like, I want to do this in my city. I want so to bring want this. To encapsulate what you were enjoying and bring it and create it in Hull. Yeah, absolutely. So you couldn't go down a happy hardcore rave way to do it. You're like, nah, that ain't going to work. Because people have to Not for me. there's a passion and there's also a reality that you have to deal with when you're getting ready to do something like that. It's a yeah. lot of passion, Rob, because there's no sometimes the passion is so great, there's no money made for a long time. Well, I'll tell you the story. So I went down this path of like putting the DJs I wanted to hear at the DJs that played the music I loved. Um so I I put the hardcore, the rave scene, put that to one side and started my new project initially and about Sasha was then playing house music you know he was playing sort of a lot of death mix stuff and and it, it was when he just started his renaissance um, residency so that's when David and Frankie and all those guys were playing the renaissance 
So that was 100% the sound I loved, along with Graham Park and Michael Pickering, um, all of those guys, Lenny, you know. And that's that was the sound I loved. However, in the city at the time, it, it, you know, it was still, everybody still was into the rave scene. So it was a little bit too early, and I, I put a, a big party on, cost me a fortune. Is it? Party? Yeah, th this was the these were the rave nights I did. These were mega successful. This is mega success. Dance Unity Night. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're still talked about now. You know, it's still the the tapes from these events go for a fortune on um on YouTube. I mean, sorry, on eBay. You know, and these these flyers are collectors' items. Okay. But it was. I enjoyed doing the parties, but the, you know, it was just that those DJs went on a different went started to play a different sound. Mm -hmm. Got it. Initially, they were playing house music. Then they went down. You know, obviously, Groove Rider went into his drum and bass. But it, all, they, all, those, all those guys started to play more hardcore, mm. and that wasn't the true sound for me. And I had a belief that no, we've got to do this right. You, you know? see, but you know what? Some people would say, you know what? It's a safe bet. I'm going to stay <laughs> with the safety because I'm making. You know, wow, this is. I'm not. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean. You know, but I can live with it. From a business perspective, from a business perspective, I look back and think, you know what? I should have carried on doing those, but then set up a second brand for, for me. Um, but, you know, it was just like, I like to devote all my time. If I'm into something, I have to give it 100%. So that's what I thought. So I went down that path of, um, you know, real house music, um, and initially, it didn't go down that well. Um, well, that's I the thing I want to ask you. How do you start to convert people? Because they've been listening to rave music for a while. Yeah, so I know it was difficult. It was difficult. And the first event I did, I put a massive line upon. Um, and it was half, it was half empty or half full. You know, it was, uh, and it was, a, it was so disappointing. I was that disappointed. I decided to sell my decks. I, you know, I'd, um, <laughs> I, 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 the story before that is that I'd, I'd uh, split up from a relationship. Okay. We'd, we'd sold the house. We'd made some profit on the on the sale of the house. So what did I do? I went and bought some decks, bought a sound system, load more records, and started putting parties on. Anyway, so. I had to, by putting the more true house music on and it, it not working the first time, I had no option but to sell, I, was, I had to sell my decks, I had to sell my records because, you know, it lost a load of money. And I was pretty heartbroken at the time because I believed in what I did. Right. Um, and I, but I gave it six, I thought, well, but what happened was we recorded those DJs on the night and... We sold the tapes to try and recoup some sort of money and, you know, all the rest of it. But everybody loved these tapes. Everybody got into the music and went, why didn't we come to this event? The music's amazing. Oh, okay. So they didn't yeah. know they were missing. So now to they're all going, why don't you do it again? Yeah. And I'm like, I lost, I lost thousands last time. What is it? Uh, give, give everybody uh, an idea. Give everybody an idea what it costed back then to put on an event like that. Well, it was it was the venues then, Lenny. I mean, you know, you can get venues a lot 
lot cheaper now. No, but we're talking back then. Back then, uh, nightclubs could open because nightclubs in the UK, for instance, you know, last orders was at half past ten or something in in a local pub. So everybody used to go to the, the nightclub for a later drink. So they had a captive audience. So for you to get an, um, a weekend night at a nightclub was near on near on impossible unless you paid the venue a massive higher fee. So you know it would be it would be a few thousand pound, three thousand pound, and then you've got. None of these venues had a decent sound system, which we, we we chatted about before. So you had to bring all of that in. You would, you know, you had to you had to bring everything in to make it a good party. So yeah, it cost a fortune. I mean, DJs were a lot cheaper then, a lot lot cheaper. I mean, back in those days, for instance, I booked Carl Cox, and he was seven hundred pounds. You know, um, I mean, you know, I don't even really want to even think what what his fee is nowadays, but it's. You know, it's in, in the many thousands. Yeah. So that's what I'm trying to, to let people know that before you even open the doors, you were already four, five, six thousand pounds in the negative. Before oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thousands. Yeah. But it was just like, you know, it was just. Well, imagine that, everybody. He's got to give the place a what they call a true bar guarantee. Because that's what you're really doing. You're covering their bar so that you can use their establishment. And then yeah. you, would you be able to keep 100% of the ticket proceeds or did they want to split that with you? No, no, we would, we'd keep all the ticket proceeds, but we'd have to pay an IFE for the venue, which in those days was astronomical, like I said. So, um, so it was a big risk. And, but, worth, um, and worth it because, I mean, you took the risk and it paid off. But how many times did it take for you to get to the point where it started to make sense to do this? Where you said, okay, this is making sense. Because the cassettes are starting to get around. People are yeah. sharing the cassettes. They're loving the music. Now they're starting to talk. The talk is beginning. Yeah. They're talking about the music. Um, they're starting, you know, they're thinking this music's amazing. Um, how do we They're going to do some more parties. So we thought, right. I thought. Let's do let's do some smaller parties and um, let's see how it goes. You know, not I, I didn't book like you know a massive lineup or anything. A few guest DJs, Alistair Whitehead uh, was one of them. He was just making his name at the time, so it was you know Alistair was was a few hundred pound at the time, so it wasn't a big risk. Um, so we we put these we put these parties on and they went down really well. Um, and we did these um, for maybe about eight months. Then it came to everybody saying, you should do you should do another big party again. And we did these parties on the bank holidays, on the May bank holidays. Um, and I said, you should do another one. And um, we thought, I just thought, right, okay, but I need to rebrand it. Because I want these parties to be big. We're going in big because the smaller parties were called delightful. Um, and we thought we've been here before. We've been here before. Watch, and we just thought we needed something that sounded a bit classy. And we thought deja vu. We've got that feeling of deja vu. And that's how deja vu came about. Oh, wow. um, and I set about, I then set about building a lineup. Um, we had Judge Jules on, we had Alistair Whitehead. Um, John Kelly, legends at the time. 
um, um, but then the big one for us was I was I was you know calling around. I mean, you, nobody emailed those days; it was fax. So yeah, I was going to say there was no such email yet. No, no, no. Yeah, you'd get you'd get you'd get on the telephone and like you know you'd have to speak to an agent. So I remember making a few telephone calls. Um, and you know, you know, you could you could call agents at any time of the, any time then back in the day, you know, because pe- prom- promoters were like um, the the it was like an hobby for most people. So right. promoters and like myself, we, we we you know we had a, a daytime job, and then we'd be calling agents up or people who'd be looking after the you know sorting the bookings out for particular DJs on an evening. Anyway. We called, we, we called an agent up and he said, oh, I've got something you might be interested in, Masters at Work. And I went, and I'd love the new track. I think it was I Can't Get No Sleep featuring India. That had just been released. And I thought, yeah, that could work. That could definitely work, you know. Mm-hmm. It's got a bit, gives it a bit of glamour, New York, New York DJs coming over. So we, and they were playing Ministry on the night before, so it worked. So we think, I just thought, yeah, let's do it. Um, so we also put Masters at Work on with India doing a live PA. And this time, Lenny, it just, tickets just flew. It just went, it just went, it just went mental. Um, and, you know, that set us on the, on the road. So, you know. And that's around the time when that music was starting to, Break into the BBC pop chart too. Certain, yeah, I guess it was. There was there was a whole thing going on. There was a movement. There was clubs supporting it from the street level, and also the major record companies were putting records out that were crossing and becoming what we call no more a dance or pop or house record, be more with the popular record. So. You kind of was at the cusp of everything as it, all the points coming together. Timing yeah. is critical here. Very critical. You know, you caught you caught it right at the right time, which is good on you. You know, there's yeah, a stroke was... of luck too that goes with that as well. It's it's foresight, passion, and luck. Because you can yeah. be lucky too. You know? Absolutely. I mean, that that was the thing when we first launched it, when we when I tried to do it. A year earlier, it was just too early, you know. Everything's about timing in this industry, Lenny. You know that, you know, it's, it's oh. got to be timing is, in, is so important, yeah. Because you get to this level, you know, it's it takes it takes a lot to get to that to get a brand so well known that it pulls thousands and thousands of people. Hmm. You know, you've been lucky to have so masses at work. So being that's your first international booking, how did that go for you? Amazing. Yeah. Um, incredible. Um, it's got to realize I, something, everybody. The international DJ in house music, this is all brand new. New promoters, new clubs, new sound, and new acts coming up from this is not Jeff Young from BBC coming or Tony Prince from DMC. This is all new people now. And you're gonna have to, you know, come together and put this right because you know, people are coming to play and you have to have somewhat of their rider fulfilled. You know, even those days the riders were a lot different back then than they are now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if most DJs didn't even have a rider. 
No, they didn't, Lenny. Absolutely not. You know? No, we, um, you know, like we, we we chatted about this earlier, didn't we? You, was, you went into a lot of clubs. You, you was grateful to have one monitor and a pair of working decks, you know? I mean, nowadays, on the riders, DJs want four, three thousands and the new V10 mixer and a um, RMX 1000 or two. You know, I mean, the tech specs now are phenomenal. Um, but yes, like back in the day, two 1200s, that worked, and a mixer. There wasn't even a specification on what mixer it was going to be. Um, right, a mixer. Mm -hmm. A mixer, right, A. A mixer, yeah, A mixer. There wasn't, you know, there was a mixer. Sometimes it'd be a mixer with a crossfader. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You talk about you talk about like a very simple time comparing this to how things are now. They didn't even mention about specifications of pyrotechnics or light show. It was just, oh, we're just happy to show up and play music. Just to play yeah. something. We got something to play to. We got a crowd that's going to love us. A lot of times, even for me as a DJ coming as a guest, you didn't know what you were walking into. You had no idea. There was no one there before to tell you. You just went and did it and hoped for the best. Yeah, you know, a lot of times gigs like yourself were wonderful, of course, because you had everybody ready for it. But there was also those nightmare moments where promoters were watching, say, what you were doing and they wanted to copy what you were doing, but they didn't have all the things in place to create a night like yours. You know, it's not easy when you're when you're trying to be like someone else. Like you said, I went to see Grand Park. And Mike Pickering and Hacienda, and you got to see all that and your story and all those big clubs and trouble playing and hearing the music. You, you, you did a lot of research along the way to get this. So, yeah, as, you know, so you're in the game now. You know, we're talking the early 90s, the golden era. The 90s is starting to now take off. The music is taking off. How often are you doing these parties now? Are you thinking after the masses at work, since it was so sensational? you want to keep going on that level or do you go back to doing it in a smaller way again for a little bit um no i mean from that from that point onwards i wanted to do another big party so i'd, I'd started to plan my next big event um i was also doing a weekly weekly event at a venue called the rooming hall which was a fairly you know it was only 500 capacity venue but i was doing that every week and that was super successful um that was capacity every single week. Um, but it was it was when I did a, a massive party in 1994 when I decided to um, leave my job building caravans. Um, oh, you did leave in 94. Okay, so you left. I left in 94, yeah, which was a year later. So back in the day, we, we, we got three weeks holidays from caravans. Um and I devoted all of that time to promoting my next big party. Um, so I went all over the all over the UK, putting flyers in record shops because that's what you did back then, and clothes shops. I then took my records and the box of flyers, put them in a suitcase, and flew over to Ibiza. Um, DJed at a bar there to get the name about. Um, and put my flies around the island. Then uh, the big 
day, the big night at the time in 94 was space on a Sunday. And that's where everyone who was anyone, that was the day that everybody went to. Um, so I rocked up with a box of flyers. Pepe, the owner of space, was on the front door. I didn't know who he was at the time. Anyway, I just um, I just asked, I just asked him if I could give out. I said I was coming in, I was paying in, but could I bring some flyers in and give them out? What did he say to you, Pepe? And he said, yeah, and he, he just said, yeah, cool. No problem. <laughs> in those days, they were very relaxed about it because later very on. Very relaxed. I mean, nowadays. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, at the end of the day, the, the Brits are out there for one week or two weeks. Then they're going back to the UK. Pepe, you know, all the guys in Ibiza knew they needed to keep all the Brits on, on board. They needed to keep the British promoters happy and the DJs because it was a very tight-knit scene at that, at that time. Yes. There wasn't the thousands and thousands of people that invaded Ibiza at that particular time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they were very welcoming. We we put loads of flies around all the tables in space. Everybody, we had, we had Graham Park on, Danny Rampley, and Alistair Whitehead and Tom Wainwright. At that time, Graham, Graham Park was the biggest DJ in the north of England. And I would say Danny Rampley was the biggest DJ in the south, in, in London. Yep. So that combination was massive for us. Um, and again, tickets went... Tickets went really well. Loads of people that we'd met in Ibiza came, and and that party sold out. And it was that it was at that moment when I realised I've had three weeks to put my full give the, these parties my full attention, and this is what this is what the result is. Um, so I decided not to go back after my holidays and go back to caravans. I just carried on, you know, putting parties on. I think it was about two months later. I went to buy a DJ magazine, opened it up, and, and in the top clubs in the UK, Deja Vu's at the top, is number one. And I'm like, what? I was absolutely blown away. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I was like, wow, I didn't expect this. I, I had dreams and aspirations, but I, you know, I said to my friends, this has happened a bit quickly. You know, it's like I've only given my job job up a couple of months, you know, I've got a I've got a plan. Um, but no, it was it was amazing times. Let me show these. Let me show. See, this is what this is what we're saying. This, this, this was Faith. This was a, another brand which I created because uh, um, my nights became that popular. We moved to an, uh, a, a fifteen hundred capacity venue, and we did Fridays and Saturdays. So some weekends we'd have three thousand people through the doors. That's what I'm talking about. See, what I'm saying like. He's talking about he took his flyers, deja vu flyers, right? To Ibiza. Yeah, so that that one, that one right at the top, Lenny. Can you see it? The blue and yellow one. Yeah. That that was the fly that I took to Ibiza. So guys, he took it on the plane, a bunch of box with him to bring to Ibiza to go to space. And he goes to Pepe. Now, if he tried to ever do something like that, they'd throw him out on his ear. He wouldn't even get Absolutely. To Could yeah. you imagine trying to go to high now and do that high? What are you out of your mind? You ain't even going in the parking lot with these, no less coming into this club. Yeah. See, but it was all new, it was organic, it was 
you guys are writing the rules as you went there. And that's nothing. A big part of it. There was no rules yet. You were just going with what you were thinking worked. And yes. it's, and it's like, you got lucky and very good in a very good, very lucky way. It's, it's, it's also a bit of planning. You said like, but see now that nobody understands that part. You went all over England with your car and dropped, you drove all over the country back then. Yeah, literally, and um, literally, you drove around the whole country and dropped boxes of, and, of flyers. And, and we would we would stand outside clubs like the Hacienda no. at two in the morning. You didn't do that. And give out flyers, give out flyers. That's what everybody did then, you know. So you'd you'd walk out of a club or whatever a river, and you'd be bombarded with all these flyers from different events across the country. So you know, the scene was that strong. It was, it was, it exploded in the UK. That you know, the, the, there'd be a massive night on a Wednesday night in Newcastle or something. You know, so we we drive two and a half hours to Newcastle to stand outside. I think it was Rock Shots in Newcastle at the time in the Nancys, um, and we'd stand outside there and give out flyers. I mean, standing outside the Hacienda, you're putting your your life. You know, you're risking your life and limb, to be honest, because the security were, you know, a little bit dodgy, to say the least. Um, <laughs> and, and they didn't want anybody taking any customers from, from them. But, you know, it was just a done thing. Every you, People used to travel all around the country. Most promoters were cool with it. They took it as a compliment that, you know, if somebody was flying outside the venue, it meant that there was only, you know, the, the, that event was, was on the map. Right. You know, if you, yeah, I mean that's that's how that's how it was. Tell us, then, you know, you, you have you had the moment where you, you you bought the house, you sold the house, you had to do a reset, kept working, came out of it. Things are going great. When do you have that moment where you have that roller coaster moment? You know, you're high, and then a drop off happens again. What what was there something that happened? Yeah, we've had that quite a few times. To oh, be honest, tell us about because everybody wants to know. <laughs> you know, it makes a great story. It's not that when you're in the high, it's how you get back up and come back out of the out of the valley and get up. Yeah. Down. So tell us. There's, I mean, there's, there's there's always venues that close or these problems. Um, uh, a big one for us was um, we were doing amazing at a venue called the Fest Club. Like I said, it was it was like it was like the North's Pasha. It had palm trees inside it. It was a, it was an incredible venue, and it was without doubt one of the top five venues in the UK at that time. People were travelling from all over the UK to come to my parties there. But we we went big with it. We had full page adverts in Mix Mag, Music Mag. You know, all I mean, those were three thousand pounds three thousand pound per page at that time. And we had, you know, we had David Morales on, we had Raymond Marillo, you know, the lineups were phenomenal. Um, but it was high risk. It's great when you're getting 1,500 people in, but if things drop off, um, another venue opened up in Hull at the time, not putting DJs on, but they targeted a lot of our audience with free tickets and and um, VIP tickets and all the rest of it. And that had a major impact, you know, because you have only got to lose like a couple of hundred people and you can go from making a profit to losing money. Yeah. 
and we tried to sustain that for for a long time for, for a good six months and it just in the end we just had to say we've got to call it a day um that was a tough moment and literally i was you know i'd run out of money i had to borrow 50 pound off a friend of mine to get some flyers printed for another i took i taken deja vu to a different venue um, because the rental at this other venue was just far too high. I just couldn't afford the overheads. Um, so we had, to, we had to start all over again. We had a lot of debts to pay off. Um, I borrowed this £50. Um, some other friends that had, was a printer, printed me some posters. And we started again. But amazingly, I think people realised... They needed to support the night. Did my first night at a venue in Hull called the Welly Club. 800 people turned up. We're like, wow. Good. Um, this, is good. this is amazing. I mean, it wasn't a very nice venue at the time, to be honest. Um, but, you know, people supported us. Mm-hmm. Um, then the venue, the venue owner, I'd, I'd worked with him at the room. He said, look, how about... They had a room downstairs, what they call the ballroom, but it, need, it needed soundproofing. It needed a lot of money spending on it. And he said to me, look, if we give you a budget, would you bring if, would you bring Deja Vu to this venue if we soundproof and, um, and refurbish that room? I went, yeah, of course. Sure. Let's, let's do it. And, uh, yeah, we had a plan and uh, we pulled things back. And yeah, we had six six amazing years at that venue. Um, and again, we we won a we won many awards at that venue. A lot of DJs loved it. And uh, this was. Do you remember Galaxy Radio, Lenny? Yeah, I think I got a picture from. That it. was um, that was a big a big. Uh, this one here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a big. Well, show the award, guys. Show you showing in real life. Show the award. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. Okay, and that's what yeah, you have a big, Galaxy. That was the second biggest uh, radio station in the UK at the time after Radio One, um, and uh, they had they, they did a big survey or some nightlife awards, and um, and we managed to pull in three thousand three thousand uh, votes, which was quite a big thing at the time because you had to log in online. This yeah. is two thousand and seven, you know. <laughs> Not many people really. Nobody had internet on the on the telephones. You had to go on the computer and. Uh, you had and, to go and, home. You had to turn on your computer. You had to actually be dedicated to. Yeah, you had to put your details in. Then you had to vote. So it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a big imagine deal. back then you couldn't even get people to make a phone call. You want them to go home and start, you know, type. Can you can you make sure you vote us? So that's a big thing that you got that award. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was made up of you know with that with that. It was a big thing because it was the it was the clubbers, it was the it was our followers that uh, made that happen to it for us. You know, and then of course, I do know you take this on to Ibiza. You had to go. Back. Yeah, I know you. I know you. I know you <laughs> had this idea. You know, because all, all you guys wanted to bring it to Ibiza, bring the the clubbing life to the sunshine. You know. Absolutely. Well, of course, that was, you know, I'd gone to IB for in 88. Um, and I'd been visiting the island from that point onwards, most 
every summer and uh and then we got we got the call from eden um to ask us if we wanted to do some parties there um it was there it used to be the star club before eden and it was it was um being bought by the guys who, who own mambos mm -hmm. and um so the offered us the, yeah they offered us they offered us a night and we said yeah what what night is it and they went oh monday um and we thought monday monday's a manumission the right. biggest the biggest night in the world lenny you know i played for them i remember <laughs> and you know we're like you know manumission was huge it was the biggest night in the world Ten thousand people they're in, in you know <laughs> yeah it was just it was it was you know it was so huge it was in all the it was front page of the of the tabloids in the uk the lot um and uh, and i just thought you know what i'm gonna go for it <laughs> everybody said it's a suicide mission but we did, i just went yeah let's do it um and yeah it was it was a it was a good okay. part it was the busiest monday hang on. Hang on. of the season hang on so you now have to work in San Antonio, which is a different animal than Old Town Ibiza, Manumission, where that was. It's a different, you know, San Antonio is like London in a sense. At that, in those days, an English, very English populated area, more so yeah. than the other parts of the island would have different demographics. You had the German side, you had the Italians. What? How long did you stay on the island, and what's involved with getting a party off to off the ground, being in Ibiza? You know. Well, at that time, it's like the Wild West in San Antonio. It really was. You know, there was a lot of competition. A lot of the British promoters, all the big big UK nights, were over over there, and they were all co pretty much competing against each other as well. Um, and it, you know, San Antonio was the Wild West. You know. Uh, I mean, you can't even give it. it was just it was just so competitive there was flyer people everywhere people were pulling down each other's posters it was it was just crazy but we 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 landed on the island three weeks before our party um we took something like five thousand posters we covered the island in these posters didn't realize that actually the way um, we put them up two weeks before thinking that you know they'd stay up they only they stayed up about two nights and everyone else is putting their own you know covering them that's how it went <laughs> and we're like right we're gonna need we need to get some more posters so one of our djs was coming over i said like you need to bring these posters i think it cost us about 500 pound in in um excess baggage you know exactly <laughs> it's a weird fortune and uh, we started we started all over again but we had um we had to we thought we needed something which is a bit of a gimmick so we i mean it was a bit commercial at the time but i beef was a little bit commercial in a way um and we knew we we had to go up against the biggest brand in the world or the biggest club in the world so we we we, we produced these flyers which was the which was flat eric I'd, I don't know if I've sent you a copy of one of those. I sent, I showed you the back of it. Anyway, it was, it was like a puppet. Um, no, I don't have that. It was a cut out flyer. 
Um, and that re that really made us stand out. And then we got these we got these uh, big large heads made of, of Flat Eric. And so we had our promo team doing that. Um, and literally we'd turn up all, all around the island. There was one particular time John Kelly was being was uh, was being interviewed. I think it was for Club of Vision or something. I think it was oh MTV. Do you remember when MTV was on the island? Yes, sir. Um, and there was there was they were interviewing Judge Jules, John Kelly, and we sent a couple of our promo people with these flat Eric's behind the 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 TV cameras and stuff. And uh, next minute they're in, you know, they're, they're saying, "Hang on, bring the cameras here." <laughs> And they put the focus asking us about what, what's his party about? What is it? What is this party all about? Yeah, yeah, what is it? You know what I mean? It was like, but that, you know, that went really well. Um, we, we caught the imagination of everybody on the island. But you know what I beef was like? It's very unforgiving. They asked us to do the full season. Um, I also had a crash on the island. Um I, yeah, I mean that. This was quite high profile at the time because I crashed in, accidentally crashed into Kim Mazel just outside the 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 airport. Um, so we decided, look, it was about time we, we need to get back to the UK and concentrate on our UK operations rather than um, rather than getting all messy in Ibiza. And but yeah, it was great times. Wait, wait. So when you say crash, when you say crash. It wasn't, you know, nobody was there. It was just like, but literally, the vehicle that we'd been sponsored and we'd been provided with this vehicle, um, and yeah, it was a write-off. So, <laughs> explaining that to our sponsors, a car, um, a car dealership in Hull, was a bit difficult. Being as true house stories, who makes the phone call to the to the dealer? <laughs> We want to hear that part. What's that like for someone to have to now call up and say, well, we're not bringing that vehicle. We, we don't have the vehicle anymore. <laughs> yeah. They had to send, they had to send some of the insurance company, sent somebody out to pick it up from the UK to pick it up from IB from bring it back. How bad was the car? Pardon? How bad was the car? It was bad. It was, it was very total, bad. Total. Yeah. I would say Probably totaled, yeah. I mean, it was a Mitsubishi Shogun. I think it was about £60,000 at the time because um, it was all, you know, it was all singing, all dancing. <laughs> <laughs> that's a visa living. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it. It was crazy at the time in IB for Lenny, you know. It was mental. Um, it was just, you know, the Brits were going wild at that particular time. It was, it was the period, you know, when... Um, Oh, well, what's, what was the movie? What was the cheesy movie that was uh, that Pulp was filmed Fiction. at Green? Pulp Fiction was around. No, no. What was the Train Spotting? No. What was Pop the movie for my Oh, I'm trying to think what it was now. Um, I've lost it. But it was that era where people were living, have as you guys are saying, having it. Having yeah. It. Yeah. Let's have it. So you so you decide to put the cap on the bottle to the Eden project. So how many years did you do do Ibiza with Deja Vu? Was it one full season? Well, that, that once that one season, then we returned and did a couple of parties in two thousand and five. 
Okay. Um, we did those at El Divino. By this time, we'd calmed down. We were more professional. Nothing went wrong. It was uh, an amazing gig. Okay. Were you? Were, let's let me make the comparisons. Were you partaking in the partying side as well when you were running Deja Vu in Eden as like a partier with the idea of being a promoter? Opposed to the El Divino time where you just went in there mm. and said, right, we're going to be just straight up promotions and not be involved in the party sense. Because that's what happens when you're in Ibiza. You yeah, involved. absolutely. Um, I think in, you know, 1996 when we did Eden, it was like, you know, you go to Ibiza and, you know, it's, it's it, you just lose it. You lose control. It's just such a, it's just such an amazing island. But I've, I've learned over the years from going many times that, you know, some of the locals say to you, respect the island or the island will spit you out. And it's something I always remember. So when I've been over there, I mean, I've run parties over there a few years back, did two seasons. Um, yeah, you've got to respect it. You've got to, if you get, if you're going to go full on partying all the time, it's just not going to work. You need to be professional. I used to say to myself once, once a week, once a week, I'll allow myself to go out. But you know, it's um, I I just I love the music. I love the I love the spirit of the island. So a lot of the time, I, I wouldn't drink, I wouldn't party. I just enjoy the music. For me, it's about the music and the ambience and the magic of the island. I got to give two people a shout. They're helping you out here. Deli G and Digadubup says one says the answer was all gone, Pete, and the other one says. <laughs> That movie was Kevin and Perry go large. Exactly, yeah, Kevin and Perry, yeah. Thank you guys from the Peanut Gallery. They're helping you. Mm -hmm. They're kind of giving you like, wait, wait, oh wait, is that is that yeah. Kevin and Perry going large? So, you know, I can understand. I've seen it with the DJs. I've seen them high off their off off you know off their trolley, as you would say, and. It, it's like that's what goes with that island it, and they lose themselves and oh my god it, it's not hard to lose yourself there very easy because the stuff's all around you you know what i'm saying you easily could fall into that and if you're weak oh forget it <laughs> forget mm -hmm. it. it's hard to say no you know i could see guys saying oh yeah i'll tell you, sure i'll have that i'll have that you know it's but you go back with El Divino and you did you did another season with them. And I do remember that party going off very well for you as well at that time. Because I was doing, if I remember correctly, that was a time when I was playing for Pasha Ministry Fridays. Around the same time you were doing El Divino at that era. Yeah. Yeah. I remember coming to the, the Pasha Nights, Lenny. Uh, Jazzy was uh, one of the residents, wasn't he? Yes. And I was also He playing. was, yeah. Loved those parties, to be honest. A lot of there was so many great, great parties. It was an extension of what was going on in England. It just felt like the same type of party, of course, in a very conducive, fun, fiesta atmosphere with beautiful sun changes everybody's thinking on how partying should be. Because when you're in Ibiza, nothing else matters. You remember that? You're there. You yeah. don't remember yeah. anything else. It's like you're there. Everything else is a blur. Right at that time of your life. At that time of your life. All right. So the golden roaring 90s come and go. 
And now we change over from 99 to 2000s. And this is when life starts to change and music starts to somewhat make a change. Where are you on to at this point with, with your brand? 2000 after the millennium was when we we'd launched the Fest Club. Um, and we had three amazing years at that venue. But the, the it was still, the super club thing was still working really well. Um, as in like, you know, the big brands, people wanted the big promotion, the big DJs. Um, but I think it was probably, I think it was about 2003, things started to slow off a little bit. Um, you know, the, 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 we didn't get the numbers and that's when, you know, there was a lot of competition in the city as well, like I've mentioned before. Um, but then, you know, things turn around again and, and we, we start smashing it. And that's the thing. I say it all the time, it's staying power, you know? And, and, and you know, so many brands at that time were chopped, gone. This one's gone. That one's gone. This club is closing. That club is closing. A lot of things change. And the super clubs, they were they were going through a lot of changes. They couldn't carry the numbers anymore, a lot of these cities, because they just didn't have the, those clubbers anymore. And the age group of your original people are getting married. They're leaving. That changeover, sometimes the newbies don't see it the same as the others, the, the, as I call the older generation. You know, and how do you, as a promoter, decide where you're going to make a change now? Because you got to also get away from passion now, and you got to think about financial. And that's a tough road, because I know from an artist sense, it's hard to make a change. Um, and I know when you have passion in your heart for a certain style of music, Certain things have to give. So you, you you go through the 2000s and then David Guetta comes out with an album that changes everything. And EDM starts. So where do you fit in with this changeover too? Because EDM is starting to take its, its, its place now. House music is becoming more of a back end or backroom music. What do you do there? Well, we didn't really jump on that bandwagon, to be honest, Lenny. Um, and I would say we just kept it. We kept it real. We still, we we still stuck to our our true our sound, um, and that's really where I think we've stuck to our guns. But we brought new talent through. We've looked at what's you know what DJs are coming through, who's going to be the next big thing. But we never jumped on the EDM bandwagon. It just wasn't wasn't for us. Just like we didn't jump on the, the uh, trance, we we did put the odd trance DJ on now and again on one of our Friday nights, but we didn't really, it wasn't a big thing for us. Um, you know, the I think some brands that went down that path, but we didn't we didn't like to pigeonhole ourselves too much or jump on the some some brands like they'll, they'll become really big because they'll jump on, they'll be known for the latest sound. We would dip our toes in into a different sound now and again. But ultimately, we would always be an house brand. Right. You know, and that's 
that seemed never, to work for us. changed the core. The core, no. the core belief was house music, no matter what, it could be newer versions of house music, but we're not changing our core. No, absolutely. So when that you say it. we, who is I say it because it was just when I say we, because we're a collective, as in like, okay, it's my night, deja vu is my brand, but it's teamwork. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. So when you sit down and you're making a decision, are you sitting down with a bunch of guys or is it just you? No, it's like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll chat to my residents, I'll chat to my friends, I'll chat to my clubbers. It's all about communication, you know, and, you know, you've got to listen to people. You, you've, it's not just about me. I don't think, well, you know, I know, I know everything about the scene. So what I say goes... It's like, you know, you make you, you sometimes make joint decisions. I ultimately will make that decision, but it's not it's not just about me. It's about we are a we are a family. We've got people that have been coming to our, our events for years. So, you know, you they do have an input in some way. I want to bring something up. I remember you wrote this and now it's making me think about it. COVID hit because we're, you know, you've had a very long, long road and a very successful road. And I remember you saying something to this effect. It's like, now what the hell are we going to do? You know, at that point when, yeah. when lockdown happened, you, your bread and butter is that door opens, you bring your punters in, you give them value for, you know, value for Dosh by bringing some of the best talent from your heart that you think they'll like because you've done your research. But now you're told you can't do anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. What do you do? What did you, what was the first thing that went to your mind? It was a tough period, wasn't it? It was, uh, I was going out my mind, if I'm honest. But it was, we had that we had the initial initial lockdown um and through that period i was just thinking right how can i get through this what can i do um i was looking at the all the guidelines in the uk trying to second guess what the government were doing what was going to be the you know i was just literally studying every little every white paper that was coming out on covid and and just trying to come up with a plan when restrictions would be lifted to, you know, just to the point people could leave the house, would I be able to put a party on? Um, and I managed to put a socially distanced event on, like a, it was one of the UK's first socially distanced festival. But it yes, was I remember that. Happen. You announced it. I remember I'm doing a social, I remember that. Socially yeah. distant. How much was the capacity you were allowed? To have in peace. Um, five hundred people, because we had hundred tables. Oh, six hundred people. Sorry, six hundred people. But it was a big space because we had to have, you know, <laughs> everybody had to be socially distanced. So it was like it was the size of a football pitch, you know. So it I'm was laughing big. now at it, but at the time we weren't laughing. I'm laughing at it because it's funny now. But about that, it's story. funny now. It's funny. We look back and think. Why did we even agree to all this? You know, it's just like, but it was, you know, we had to, I think it was, we, each table had to be three meters apart from each other. Um, and it was, it was crazy, but we pulled it off and 
the people that came loved it. The, the one thing that was a problem at the time, you wasn't even, you wasn't supposed to dance either. You, you, you were supposed to be sat down at your table. Lucky. And it, it went against everything I believed in because ultimately for, for the last 30 years, it, it, it was all about getting people on that dance floor and going crazy. Let me show everybody I'm, what he means. Look, I'm running look, around trying to ask everybody to sit down. Sweatbox, he wants you at. You know what I mean? Where everybody's on top of each other, loving the music and being part of something, right? Yeah. He's not thinking about having everyone squared off in the each table box because i remember seeing the layout you did this and you had to have the tables like in in columns if i remember you showed the picture yeah you had the, <laughs> in each table they couldn't intermingle between tables either that was another thing that's right but the problem was when people have had a few drinks that's all that changed. goes out the window, doesn't all it? It changes now, baby. There yeah, is no more rules. What rules? Everybody's all intermingling, getting up. I love you. I miss you. Yeah. Um, which which causes a few problems at the time um with the police and the local council. That's but... what I was gonna ask you. What the hell did you have to deal with that? Because you must have had problems there. You definitely had problems after that. We, yeah, we had some explaining to do, but what could we do? It, we didn't actually break any laws, Lenny, because you, you know, all right, there were there were guidelines, but you cannot, by law, you couldn't stop somebody walking over and hooking somebody. That's up to them. Or you, stop them. and <laughs> it's like yeah, you do. Yeah, exactly. How could we? And if 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 a table of people just stood up and started dancing. How can we control that? We can't, can we? <laughs> we can ask him to sit down, but it's it, it was ridiculous. Um, so we did that. We did that socially distanced festival. Then we moved it into a venue, and that got even sillier because I had to because people were intermingling at the festival. I had to put a plan in place where I'd had to section off all the tables so there were these barriers all around them. It just got it, and at that point, you're treating people like cattle. Um, oh, I did that. Sorry. Come on, man. What is this? I can hear people like. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going around all the tables, and they're saying, "What's the matter with you?" And I'm yeah. like, "What are you it's not me. It's not me." But to be fair, people still appreciate that we're still trying to supply some entertainment. Because we still put DJs on, we had saxophone players, percussionists. It was we were still bringing some joy to people, and people did appreciate it. Um, and for me, it was keeping me busy. It was keeping me sane. We didn't make any money. It was just if we could bring some joy to people and also keeping them. That's what it was. It was just about keeping motivated, ready ready for when we could open, but which obviously lasted a lot longer than we anticipated. Oh. I think in the UK, it was 16 months. That's a long time. I don't know what it was in the US, Lenny. What was it? What was I it there? Come, the problem was, the problem was for me to even travel in to come and play. So let's say I came and you wanted me to come in and play for you. I would have to leave two weeks before and sit in a hotel in England to isolate 
14 days, then take the test and then be allowed to come out and play. It was crazy. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I said, I'm like, I can't do this. This is nuts. Sit 14 yeah. days in a hotel and then go to a gig. So a lot of us said, forget it. We'll wait to see. It wasn't until last year that I, I actually had my first gigs again, April last year in England. Wow. So it was like almost yeah. 24 months before the internationals can really come in, come back. It's crazy. Mm. Yeah. Oh, my God. So that, you know, I want to tell people for you, I remember you were writing stuff on your page, you know, because if you know Terry, Terry tells you when he's not happy. <laughs> that's true <laughs> I, I think yeah I, I did express my feelings over the old COVID oh scenario. my god I used to read Terry's Terry's uh, things and go I think he's mm. a little upset right now <laughs> <laughs> he's a little angry right now yeah I was getting a little frustrated a little bit frustrated the fact that I was locked, to, locked in at home um, I was single at the time as well so I was living on my on my own and um and I couldn't I couldn't even see my children. That's another as well. Yeah. That was a it was it was just crazy. You know, and you're seeing your business crumbling beneath you. Your life um, crumbling. You don't know what tomorrow's gonna be like. And you're like, this is asinine. This is we're not getting anywhere. What we're supposed to do. We're not getting help from the government. And it goes on and on and on. Absolutely. I remember doing I did one live stream. I, I enjoyed it for about 45 minutes, 60 minutes. Then all of a sudden, I re it, it just didn't feel the same. I'm like, this is weird. You know, it's like you, you're used to getting the, getting that energy off people, the interaction. And it, all it did was make me miss putting parties on and meeting people and socialising and doing what I do and what, what I love even more. Because it just reinforced all of those, the isolation when you're used to, you know, putting parties on for a thousand people, all of a sudden you're stuck in your your um, your kitchen or your living room, playing online. It just didn't feel right. I don't know what it was like for you, Lenny, but it just it was just weird. Let me just say what it was for me. So I watched you on Facebook doing these live DJ sets, and I said, "There's no way I can do this. This is not going to last." And why you're on this show right now, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Terry Spammer? is because this show was born in a dark period of time and brought light to everyone at home. And I just kept it going and it became an institution that is now respected by all of you to actually learn these stories of people like him. And that's why I'm here today. I don't think I ever would have done this show if that didn't happen. And that is the truth. So I must say, you know, thankfully the worst, something good really came out of it, this show. And it's brought a lot of joy to a lot of people and a lot of history. We've gotten a lot of people that are no longer with us. And I'm glad I was able to get some of them, you know, along the way. So COVID ends, brother. What's the first thing you do? And I shouldn't say ends, but it, we got that pause, I remember. And we were able to actually do things somewhat normal. What's your first yeah. thing? Because this is important. Uh yeah, we well, the government in the UK announced that venues would open at the end of June that year. Actually, they put it back four weeks in the end because of cases. Um, but we we announced that we was doing our first party. We didn't announce a lineup. 
because we were still unsure about confirming and um so we just we just announced a party we sold 1200 tickets in five hours without a lineup but that's that, uh, without a lineup we didn't even know, you know i just announced it on my personal personal page personal boom. page boom. and then the deja vu page and that was it. No DJs, right? Our first party will be on this day at this venue. Bang. Yes. Sold out. And it was just amazing. Um, and uh, yeah, and then we just, I just, I was just so relieved to get back doing what I love. And yeah, that I just, we just went, went out there and started planning, booking, putting some big parties on. We, we, we had Patrick Topping. We did a big warehouse party with him. There was 2,700 people at that. That was amazing. Um, and we just kept that momentum going, really, Lenny. We've had, uh, since COVID, since COVID was end, is ended, all our parties have done really well. Generally, we sell, we, most of them sell out, which we're really thankful for. Look at that. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? That's what we want to see. Also, we want to make something very clear. Terry is responsible, and he made sure he sent this to me. Look at all the talent that he has had on. I'm going to show you one, one after another. You know, you know, you want to talk about a landscape of talent, of the who's who of dance music. I mean, it goes on and on. And he should be very proud that he added to this landscape between PA artists DJs from the different scenes he's brought into Deja Vu. And most importantly, at this stage, it's not over. Like, 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 Hot, or like Rochelle Fleming said, it's not over. It's not <laughs> over, over, oh. So where are we going now? Because I've been seeing you constantly advertising. What's the next steps for Deja Vu? Where is this thing, this brand taking us? Where? Because I'm coming back to play. I miss Deja Vu. Mm -hmm. For a long time, I haven't touched down. I got to come back and rock you guys. Yeah, you are, Lenny, definitely. So where's your next, what's your next plans in, in your brain now, in the deja vu mind? <laughs> right, so obviously we're in summer in the in the UK. Um, we've been doing our, the deja vu garden parties. We've done two of those this summer already, which uh, which both sold out. Um, we've got we've got another one in July. We've, uh, we're doing some rooftop parties at a uh, hotel in in the city, a double tree Hilton. Got an incredible uh, rooftop terrace and uh, and bar. So we're doing them. Um, yeah, we're just doing what we've always done, really, and just try and put on the best parties with the best talent. Do you have any? You know, we all have these. Do you have any like things where you do you recollect back and say, "I don't think I'll ever do that again." <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, where you say, mm, uh, "You know," when you look back in hindsight, you know, because twenty twenty vision at the time is different than when you look back and you say, "Why well, don't we've done that?" That it's difficult. Um... Or are you ever sorry for doing something? Or you just chalk it up as experience. I think you, if you make a mistake, you've got to learn by it, haven't you? It's, um, but or you, you know, you make sure you don't make that mistake the next time. Um, 
I'm more cautious now, obviously. You Why? know, you've got to be you've got to be more cautious with with your talent. You know, it's like before when you was doing weekly events, if you had the odd bad gig or you know some artists didn't sell the tickets or you know it wasn't a full venue, you could you could um, you could stomach it because you was doing weekly. Now that I'm, I'm doing monthly or you cannot you've got to be very cautious cautious about losing money so you've got to do the research on your um on the artist you book and you've got to make sure you do your promotion you know back in the day people would just come if they if they, if they knew that was a good that if you had a good venue and you did that every saturday there was the majority of my customers back in the day just come to the club anyway because they knew there would be a top guest playing that weekend. Mm. There wasn't social media, there wasn't websites. Yes, there was flies, there was posters. But the majority of people that came to my events would come through the door and go, who's playing tonight, Terry? They knew it would be a top guest. Whoever I put on, it was going to be someone good. And, and so... Um, and we've got that trust now. So it's, you know, we've been putting parties on for 30, 32, 33 years. People trust what we do. People trust the DJs that we put on. Occasionally, you know, don't you always, always be right. You can't always be right, but you try to do your best. Always. But we, we're very fortunate that people trust the brand. You know, they, they come to our events. It's... We've had people doing surveys. What's made you come? How did you find out about this night? Oh, we've seen it, but we've heard about it. People have talked about it. We've seen it on social media. Did you know the, do you know the DJs that are playing tonight? No. But we just heard it was good. You know, and that's... Don't get me wrong. We put we booked some cool DJs, and there'll maybe be two or 300 people that do know those DJs. I mean, of course, if it's someone like, you know, if it's someone really, really big, like Patrick Topping is at the moment, everybody's going to know who he is. But, you know, some more, some of the more underground DJs, people don't, but they do trust us. They know it's going to be busy, it's going to be a good atmosphere, and, all you know, the production's going to be great, the sound's going to be great. All those aspects, all those attention to detail are very important. Totally. 1,000%. And that's why you are who you are. And that's why you have a successful event that happens monthly or fortnight or weekly because you've done it all. Yeah, we've done it all. I mean, we, at one point we were doing three events a week. Can you see yourself doing that again? <laughs> that's one thing I couldn't. I mean, I look back. See, that's what I told you. That's what, can you do yeah, it again? I, I look back and think, how did I do that? Yeah, I was going to ask you, how do you handle that? Three events in one night and one week? Well, I've always had a massive work ethic, Lenny. So because I worked on a production line at Caravan um, Factory, it was very intense. Um, so I brought that work ethic into promoting my events. So back in the day when you used to have to go out postering or um, you're flying or postering, for instance, we, you know, I, I would maybe stick up 500 huge posters around the city. Um, and I was the best at the city at doing that, you know, in the city. 
and everybody would know about my events. So, it, yeah, it was just work, work, work. Um, and that's that's not changed today. The work, work ethic is still there. You can't, there's too many, too many young promoters just expect to put a party on and sell tickets or fill the venue. They've got, you've got to work at it. And, it, and, and in these financial, in these, you know, economic times, it's more difficult than ever. So you've got to fight for every customer. And when they, when you get those customers to your party, you've got to make sure that they go away having a great time. Because you need those repeat customers. Sure. Repeat business is what's going to keep you opening those doors. Yeah, absolutely. You're going to be... But, you know, I mean, for me, the most important thing is it a good party. There's times when we do lose money, but was it a great party? Did did everybody enjoy it? Yeah. Right. Okay. Let's move on. Not so, you know, we won't dwell on it. Can't cry a That's right. Yeah. It's bad when it's a bad party and you didn't make money. That's when it's hurting. Yeah. Yeah. If it's a bad, that's it. If it's a bad party and, and you've lost a load of money, then yeah. But you still got to, you know, you've got to get up on the Monday morning and, and start work again because you're only as good as your last gig, aren't you, Lenny? That's the thing. So, you know, you've got to, you've got to do the business. I think that's been the difference between with Deja Vu. We, it's the work ethic and the fact that when we've had our back against the wall, we've come out fighting and we, you know, we, we're passionate about what we do. And, um, yeah, and we've got a great following, you know, our, the people in this city and around, around the North of England that come to our, our events have been, you know, been incredibly loyal. So, you know, we, we, we are very thankful of that. Yeah. That's keeps that's keeps a brand moving along, because without yeah. loyalty, without brand loyalty, is no way to keep this going. I don't think um, we're there. Yeah, and now we've got three generations of uh, of clubbers. of customers, you know. Yeah, almost. I, so I, mean, I can only wish you, you know, the un- utmost success, constant for you, and never change your work ethic. Keep the momentum rolling. Get the best talent you can showcase the legacy as well bring on the newbies it's all important to keeping a brand absolutely you know embrace the future respect the past you know um so we still we still have the legends playing but we bring the new talent through as well you know and it's so our age group of uh people that come a party at our our nights ranges from 18 to 60. it's incredible really um, and you know, I'm thankful that we can still we can still pull in the the new clubbers. Yeah, and they, but you know, it's not easy to get you know a not, young, young crowd. With it's old- not, especially when you're you know regarded as an an heritage brand, right? Legacy heritage brand. That's right. Yeah, it, That's we're not a classics night. We do put we play new music, but. We are an heritage brand in the fact that we've been there right from the beginning. Um, you know, so compared to, you know, some young guy, young, a lot of young guys putting on a party, um, they're the coolest thing. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're very popular people. They are going to they are gonna pull a crowd, obviously, because sure. they're going to get all the friends to come. 
Yep. Yeah. A lot of my friends hardly go out anymore. Right. And so that's what I said, you don't go out. That's it. My friends, that's the thing, you know, my, my friends came to my night for the first couple of years. Then they, they grew up, had kids, calmed down. Some of them come back out again, you know, once the children have grown up. But, you know, you've got to build, you've got to build and bring new blood in. And that is a difficult thing about, you know, promoting a party. 100%. And that's why you're going to still be here in when, when we do the do the 2040 interview. We'll have Terry. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that'd be good. In 17 years, we'll have Terry Spammer telling us about what he's doing now in 2040. But for 2023, going to 2024, we can only say, you know, keep going with the same success and the same thought process and don't lose the passion because that's going to keep you rolling. I don't think you're ever going to age. You still look as good as I remember when I first met you back in the early 90s. You know, don't don't age. Stay young at heart and keep going after your dream. Never stop. You know? Keep dancing, Lenny. That's what it is. And all the people that are watching this and learning, keep up with his work ethic. This man never sleeps. He goes, 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 goes. <laughs> That's all he knows. Go, 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 go. And now we understand because he was taught on a production line how to produce things, you know, mechanical caravans. He used the same mentality of taking that and applying it to a club world. Very smart, Mr. Spammer. Very smart. Terry, thank you so much for giving your time with us. And of course, to the next parties you do, we would love to see success and you sell and ram, ram those rooms out. Cause it's going to be a hot That's summer funny. for the UK and a dry one too. Next week, everybody, we're going to go to another legend, Steve Silk Hurley from Chicago. Chicago. Jack your body, baby. Steve Silk Hurley is coming on to tell us all about his life and true house stories from Lenny Fontana to Terry Spammer to the UK to France to Chicago, Taipei. I want to wish you all a good night, a Vita Zen, Guten Nacht, and stay blessed. And don't forget, Come back next week because we need you all here again to listen to these stories. As for now, thank you, Mr. Spammer, and thank you to all. Cheers, of you. Lenny. Cheers, everyone.